Amen. Well, good morning. That is a good sound. I hear those babies. I love it. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Sincerest thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship to our King. What a joy it was to gather with the ladies for the kickoff of brunch for Women of Grace yesterday. If you were unable to attend that uh, wonderful brunch and get your workbook, please see the ever-wonderful Diana, and she will get that to you. I encourage every woman to be there. You know, as full as our lives are with kids and life, God is going to honor that commitment, and he's going to bless you deeply in both relationships and spiritual growth. And dear ones, that is going to allow you to color your world and your children's world and your family's world even brighter as they look to biblical womanhood in that study. So please, see Miss Diana for that. It begins this Thursday at 6 p.m. here at the church. So that's five days to move schedules, find babysitters, do whatever it takes. Men, help your women, help your ladies out on this. Encourage them and help them. This Thursday, 6 p.m., every lady, high school, college, mom to many, seasoned saints, we need all ages, all ages of wisdom. So we're looking forward to that wonderful time for you. Well, beloved, what a joy it is to gather as the ecclesia this morning, as the called out ones, as those who have been set apart unto Christ, we gather as the church, as the bride of Christ, she that we are called to defend and protect. And yet even as we gather, we know, please know that we have prayed for each one that would be here today. Before you even arrive, you have been prayed for. But we know that the, but the Holy Spirit wield the word and cause it to do its work. Scripture says we would be a helpless people, unable to see, unable to hear, groping in the dark. Beloved, even our capacity and our ability to receive is a gracious, benevolent act of a good God. If you leave here having been refreshed and strengthened in the Lord today, that is a grace. And a gift. The great Puritan Thomas Watson declared, As God so governs the clouds that he makes them rain upon one place and not upon another, so at a sermon the Lord opens the heart of one, and another is no more affected with it than the deaf man at the sound of music. So knowing this, beloved, we corporately declare our dependence anew this morning. Beautifully dependent, wonderfully dependent. If you've ever been accused of using your faith, of using your Christianity as a crutch, embrace that accusation. You bet it's a crutch. And upon it I lean with everything I have. Upon him I rest. Upon him I depend. So in a country of independence... We declare ourselves, our very being, our very existence, our very life as dependent creatures upon a merciful God. So we join together once again, beloved, under the banner of Christ, the banner of his word, ready to receive with humility the implanted and engrafted word. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we watched in wonderment and really apologetic bliss as Jesus shifted dramatically from his, well, usual defensive 
stance against the onslaught and attacks from the religious elite of Israel, shifting from blocking the blows of answering charges and critiques, and he finally goes on the offensive. I kind of felt like I was cheering from the sidelines, like a, like a boxing match where your guy keeps blocking all the blows, but now he finally throws a punch, and punch he did. We watched as Jesus exposed through the art of the question the ultimate error, the ultimate crisis of identity that plagued the nation of Israel concerning who Messiah was. And we examined in great detail how, despite the scripture being clear, the psalmist being clear about the divinity of Messiah to Israel, to the Jews, Messiah would merely be the son of David. He would be just a man, born of David's line, coming to fight and restore Israel as David himself had done. And while that's all true, they were missing the very key, weren't they? And Jesus exposed this error by bringing them to the most quoted, possibly one of the most well-known psalms in all scripture, Psalm 110. And it's not that Christians today alone call this a messianic psalm. This was acknowledged in even then by the Jews, and Jews now, to speak clearly of Messiah. And in fact, they've twisted themselves into fantastic knots, trying to explain away the conundrum that Jesus points to within that very psalm. We saw in that psalm that David called him Lord. But if Messiah is just David's son, is merely of David's lineage, then why does David call him Lord? And even diving into the translation of it, we saw the Tetragrammaton, we saw the name of Yahweh say to lowercase Lord, Adonai, what? Come sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. We watched God the Father speaking to God the Son, and David writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures were abundantly clear. It's one of the reasons Jesus chose this in his apologetic offensive. But we see this divine messiahship not only here in the Psalms, but in many other places as well. Isaiah is so chocked full of messianic overtures, it's often referred to as the fifth gospel. There was no reason for such a colossal ignorance to reign over all of, ignor- of, of Israel. But they had abandoned what? They had abandoned the supremacy of Scripture, the Word of God. While still giving lip service or or twisting to suit a particular need, Scripture was not what drove this society. It was not the engine underneath the hood. It was oral traditions. It was the Mishnah. It was the teachings of the scribes. If you went to the synagogue, yes, they they would unroll the scroll, and they would have a reading from the Torah. But then the rest of it would be talking about the teachings of Rabbi so-and-so, and and Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Gamaliel says that. It was far more about these extemporaneous man-made laws and rules and teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, which were all based on different rabbinical thoughts, than it ever was about Scripture. Who knew? Error follows an abandoning of Scripture. For those who may be newer visitors, you may quickly notice at Harrison Hills that we stick dogmatically to the text. Back to the text. Back to the text. Why? 
Because you don't need to know your pastor's opinion on XYZ. It's irrelevant. When we are here to present the word of God, to expound upon it, that we may know who God is, the last thing we want is man's opinion. Or jokes or stories about his fishing trip. Just give me the word. We beheld the error that comes when we don't hold scripture as our benchmark and as our guide. Most of you are familiar with the word canon, right? As in the canon of scripture. Well, guess what that word canon means? Canon means measuring stick. It means measuring stick, meaning it is by this that you measure all things. When that guy behind the pulpit says something, hold up your measuring stick. Better measure it. Does it line up? This isn't optional, beloved. We demonstrated that the nation of Israel had no idea who the very Messiah was because of this. Standing right in front of them, performing the Messianic miracles. And because they did not know their word, and because their leaders and teachers did not expound upon it, that we would know Messiah when he came. They missed him entirely. The thought of the Christ being divine and co-equal with Yahweh was foolish talk to this entire nation. And that's why all of Jesus' overtures and claims of divinity were met with what? They were met with gasps and with tearing of clothes. Because even if he was, in fact, Messiah, he wouldn't be God. And he wouldn't be saying, before Abraham was, I am. But he did. And they had no idea why. And yet there was no excuse. Jesus showed them from one of the most famous Messianic Psalms that he was divine. And the lessons for us today are far-reaching, are they not? Christ is revealed in the scriptures and is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. If we don't know the scriptures, we cannot know God. He's not in nature. Nature merely sings to him. He can't be found anywhere else but in his revealed word. That is why we test all by the word of God. Don't take a thing your pastor says for granted. Get out your measuring stick. That is a wise congregation. Now, I put myself in the hot seat here because it is precisely the leadership of Israel, because it is precisely her spiritual leaders that are about to be laid bare in a flaming torrent of woe as we move forward in our text this morning. And today we will hear what will be really the final words given by Jesus in his public ministry. This is it. Everything from here on out is either going to be spoken to the disciples or on an individual level. And so given that, after all that Jesus has accomplished, after all that he's said and done in his public ministry, how will he wind this up? What will he focus on? What will he say? He's going to turn his final gaze Toward that which has always most angered him. To that which has most grieved his heart as he observed the people of Israel. Jesus will turn his final words of public ministry 
to exposing the devastating effects of false teachers and of hypocrisy among those who claim the mantle of God. Today we will be given just a taste of the apostate leadership that had supreme control over all of Judaism. We're going to see the wicked hypocrisy that pervades false religion. Indeed, the wickedness that seeks to reside even within and alongside those that do desire God from a pure heart. We will see as we begin this two-part series that this comes with great consequence. Not only for false teachers that ensnare and, and trap unsuspecting masses, but for those entrapped, they will suffer mightily as well under such deception and false teaching and false religion. And as always, we will see with the author of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. From Jesus' time to us today. So beloved, with that, let's look to our text this morning. Mark 12, 38 through 40. Mark 12, 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who want to walk around in long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as is so often the case in our Gospels, these are difficult words. Lord, these are words that require us to engage our mind and our heart. Lord, to be aware. Lord, that we might love what you love, that we might hate what you hate. Lord, we ask that this word would find its mark this morning. Lord, we ask that it would not be lost. Lord, that wisdom would go forth through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to be working with really a very nice man who, through the course of our conversation, I learned that he lived in Utah. And he had an abundance of children. Well, of course, one could quickly deduce that this man was very likely a Mormon. Well, anytime I have these encounters, I, I truly have great compassion on the individual, as they're not only a part of a false religion, but they bear the incredible weight of those works-based systems. These are people that are loaded down with their religion. Not only that, but I found that with Mormons, for example, that many of them, your, your rank and file, your, your layman, really have no idea what they believe. No idea about the, the history of their religion, its founders, its true beliefs. No idea about the true teachings that are couched in their writings and in the ever-changing doctrines from their apostles. And thus, I truly have compassion on them. Yes, they have succumbed to a false religion, and yes, they need to repent of that and come in faith to Christ, to the Christ of Scripture. They are accountable, but they're also victims. They were blind sheep, and these people were so nice to them. They cared about them. They seemed so wholesome and good. And you know what? I've been meaning to get the kids back into church. Why not try this one? Seems like the whole community goes here anyhow. And off they go. So you will find that, and soon we find that their burdens are greater than when they began. 
Satan is a hard taskmaster to the world. He's relentless in his seething anger to see humans suffer. But it seems that he saved his greatest bludgeon of deception for false religion. And their burdens are great. So I began to further talk with this man. And I realized that he was not your everyday Mormon. He was a very high-ranking member of the LDS. He was a bishop, an elder. And as I listened to him talk, I realized very soon that this man knew exactly what he was talking about, and that he was a proselytizing predator. He knew all the history. He knew how to speak to biblical Christians on a very sneaky level. He even began talking about Calvinism, a Mormon. This man was trained. He was trained to deceive and to bring others along with him. Well, realizing what and who this man was, my demeanor changed very quickly with him. This was not a helpless victim that was snookered into a cult and was laboring under the weight of it, that needed freedom in Christ. This was a wolf. This was a head honcho leader whose job it was to prop up and propagate this false religion. My compassion left me very quickly as I really drew swords with this man. Honestly, righteous indignation rose as I could only imagine the throngs that he had deceived with his clever words and his charming personality. Jesus gave no safe harbor, no quarter to the enemy of people's souls in false religion. Thus, I did not intend to. I rebuked him in the strongest possible terms. I minced no words about what he was. Recalling Jesus' rebuke in Matthew 23, what did he say? Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's Jesus' disposition toward those who lead the charge in false religion. They are sons of hell. Jesus said, and make others twice as much a son of hell. Now, some folks are shocked to hear our loving, gentle Jesus speak like this. Yet, as we unfold our text this morning, understand that there is no compromise here from Jesus to this leadership. There is no quarter given to the enemy. Jesus had great compassion on those who labored beneath this system, did he not? Those who didn't know better. But he drew his fiercest sword for those in leadership over these false religions. So with that, beloved, let's begin with our text, if we dare. Verse 38, verse 38. And in his teaching, he was saying... Now, just a quick pause there. The, the way that this is written, and in his teaching... This tells us that what we're about to hear is it's not a one-time statement, right? This wasn't a, a one-and-done. And that's not how rabbis taught in this day. Rabbis, they would, they would walk and they would talk. And the listeners would follow and new listeners would join. Right? This was something that was not only said, but he was saying continually in this teaching session. He was walking and talking. So I want us to see this scene as it was. There's not a, a nice, neat row of people sitting here. This is a moving, dynamic teaching. And how does our Savior open this public teaching? With what word will he begin? Beware. 
Beware. Our word here is blepo, meaning to have sight, to see, to look at, to observe, to discern, to perceive with the eye. It implies a special contemplation, meaning to keep your eye on, to watch, to take heed, to take care. Again, this is a special, a more intentional and earnest contemplation. Wow. Beloved, if the second person of the Trinity, in his last final public teaching, begins by saying, Hey, I've got something that I want you to dedicate special, intentional, earnest contemplation to, that I want you to watch with a keen eye for, ought we to know what it is? Ought we to know what it is? Ought it be something for us today? Well, there is no doubt. So what is it? Or rather, who is it? Beware of the scribes. Oh boy. Our last two or three messages really have brought in this illustrious group, haven't they? And we've done a deep dive on them along with all the other major religious figures in the Sanhedrin. We know that they were the students and the experts of the law, don't we? We know that they were the PhDs. They were the smarty pants of Jerusalem. And they were the most revered in that sense. One theologian recalled a saying amongst Jews that it was Moses who received the law and gave it to Joshua. And Joshua received the law and gave it to the elders. And the elders received the law and he gave it to the prophets. And the prophets received the law and they gave it to the scribes. That's the esteem they were held in. They were the gatekeepers. They were the arbiters of truth. And understand that as far as the people were concerned, as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned, they didn't care what authority Rome asserted over them. In their eyes, they were a theocracy. This was a government by divine guidance and decree. Religious law was dominant over civil law. Or better said, civil and religious law were basically commingled. They were inseparable. So see the position of the scribe in Israel. Grasp their authority. If we are to behold the treachery of their actions that are about to unfold here. Now even in our legal system today, an, an act that's perpetrated by someone who held authority over another is always seen as more heinous, isn't it? It's always a worse offense. If you were an authority figure and you abused that authority, the crime is even higher. So not only do we need to see the high position of the scribes within Judaism for, for Jesus' meaning and for our application to take hold, but we also need to be reminded that this Judaism was apostate. It had been for a long time and continues to be to this day. Now this is really something that we need to pause and take counsel of. Now owed to many factors, we... We tend to think of, of Jesus as being born into this orthodox time, a time of orthodox teaching and practice. When we hear and see the religious speakers confront Jesus, we think of the Old Testament, that these were sons of Abraham, Old Testament, New Testament. But how often do we really process that Jesus was born into a, a pseudo-theocracy of a completely apostate religion? It wasn't like all was going great in Judaism, and along comes Jesus to continue on down their road. They had defected. 
This was a satanic Judaism that ran and controlled everything. They said, we are of our father Abraham. Jesus said, no, you're not. You're of your father, the devil, in John 8, 44. Non-apostate Jews were incredibly rare. They were there, and we see them highlighted in Scripture. But why? Why? Because their leadership was apostate. It's been well said by Stephen Lawson that a congregation can rise no higher than its pulpit. And it makes sense. If your pulpit is corrupt, if the pulpit is teaching wrong things, what hope of the laity? That's why also, as our treasured Lawson says, that we do not choose a church by, quote, style over substance, drama over doctrine, and entertainment over exposition. We don't choose a church that is closest to our home. We choose a church that's the closest to the Bible. Look at the stakes. There are none higher. Now, some folks may not have really processed or internalized the fact that Jesus lived in a time of great apostasy. This was not the faith of Abraham that ran these people. Their hearts were far, far from him. And we need to grasp that because we need to see the fruits of false religion and false teachers. If we don't fail to make that connection here in our text, that we'll miss it. That's the main driver. So we must grasp this about the day in which Jesus lived, even up to the Judaism of today. It is apostate. And it was pervasive all around from the top down. Now, I belabor this point because we need to we need to see the actions of these scribes as ones that are done within the context of false religion. And thus, Jesus is going to begin unfolding the, the treachery of this religious leadership, of these false teachers, false leaders. He's going to tell us something about them. Now, I really appreciated Sinclair Ferguson's outline of the charges against these apostate leaders by Jesus. The first charge being that they are ambitious the second being that they are proud, and the third, that they are greedy. Well, what a great guide as we dive into Jesus' teaching further. Well, back to our text. Back to our text. Beware of the scribes. Well, very well. Our senses are up. We know who we're looking at. Now, how shall we know them? Who want to walk around in long robes. Oh, boy. All right. Understand what we have here, beloved. There's two parts to Jesus' accusation here. Now, the first is the actual robe. These were long robes. Well, what's wrong with a long robe? Well, there's two lengths in view here that we need to examine. Now, first is the actual robe itself. If it's long, if you wear a long robe, that meant that you were a man of leisure. Working men could not have long flowing robes that went down to their feet. That'd be completely impractical. No, we're the elite. These aren't working clothes of the unwashed masses. It was a way to flaunt material wealth. I don't need to work. I'm, I'm a wealthy man of leisure. So there's your robe length. It was pride and possessions. It was a lover and flaunter of wealth, desiring the trappings of power. Boy, how long could we just camp there? False teachers desire these things. Now, that's just on the length of the robe. But equally, and dare I say even more important than the actual length of the robe, squarely in Jesus' statement here are the tassels. Oh, the tassels. 
Now, this is something we really must capture. If we're to see the insidiousness of the religious elite, if we're to see the heart of the false teacher. Now, if we look to Numbers 15, no need to turn there. We're going to see the establishment by God for the wearing of tassels at the end of your robe. Now, let us see the actual command by God concerning this. Numbers 15, 37 through 40. I'll read it for you. Yahweh also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commands and be holy to your God. Well, praise God. Tassels were a wonderful thing given by God, weren't they? I'm going to have you sew these on the ends of your robe so that who can look? You can look. You can look upon them and be reminded of all God has done for you, who God is, his promises to you, that you once played the harlot, but now you're to be set apart and you're to be holy unto me. When you see these, remember to follow my commandments. Remember me, remember me. Remember what you were. Remember what I saved you out of. That's the purpose of the tassels. And who is the object of reflection and affection in the tassel? It was God. It was Yahweh. Ah, but we're apostate now, aren't we? So these tassels are no longer about God. They're no longer about who he is and what he has done. But now these tassels are going to be about me. They're going to be about me. Look at how holy we are. And what would happen is that they would make the tassels longer and longer. And the longer and the bigger they were, the more holy you were. So these leaders would have ridiculous tassels, right? Huge, long tassels, all to say, look at me. One of the hallmarks of false religion is that you move from the internal to the external. If you'll notice, everything in Numbers 15 was a function of the heart. And as we always say at Harrison Hills, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. But the more apostate something becomes, we need more edifices and symbology. Dr. MacArthur picks up on this phenomenon beautifully, saying, quote, The lack of spirituality means the expansion of symbolism. The less reality, the more symbol. The more reality, the less symbol. They're in verse. But when you have nothing on the inside and only what's on the outside, then what's going to happen? Symbols will expand and explode. Just watch the Catholic Church sometime. Void of reality. Void of spiritual life. But the symbols are endless whether it be statues or relics or, in this day, tassels. External symbology to flaunt your spirituality is a hallmark of false religion. 
Now, Protestants aren't exempt from this drudging either. We don't get by that easy. When we adorn our buildings with all the fancy trappings, when we embrace or we place or value in any part of the external that detracts or distracts from our focus on the preached word, we are lengthening our tassels. We are striving for the external that others might see our super spirituality. But that's upside down, isn't it? Beloved, the greatest people in the kingdom of God, I guarantee you, you will never know most of their names. They are quite anonymous. And I think of all the many works that behind the scenes here at Harrison Hills, beloved, you will never know it. It is unto God. Their tassels are quite normal in length. Back to our texts. So we see our false teachers prize the external. They prize symbology. They see themselves as above the peasants they serve. And last part of verse 38. And want respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Now, this is not what you think, all right? This is not a, oh, hi, pastor. Nice to see you at Walmart today, right? That is not what we're talking about here. That is not what happened. This was, a, this was a bowing low to them. This was almost a, a kingly adulation from men. This was a, a parting of the Red Sea when they came into the marketplace. One theologian harkened back to Jewish literature. He was highlighting the terms that were used for these men. And they included, oh, great one. Oh, knowledgeable one. Oh, excellent one. Oh, exalted teacher. See my wife laughing up here. She's like, oh, no, never call anything else. <laughs> he goes on that they were so exalted in their own minds that it was more punishable to act against the words of a scribe than the words of Scripture. It's diabolically wicked. You were educated and placed to point your people to God, and you've taken the honor and the praise that was due to God, and you've heaped it on yourself. Meaning you're not just a thief, you're a glory thief. And the one you're stealing from doesn't share his glory with any man. And a false teacher will never be content to simply point to God. Because it's they whom they seek. It's them who seeks the glory and the honor. And that will come out. Joseph Bailey, he observed, quote, No person can foster the impression that he or she is great, and then exalt a great God. Close quote. In fact, it is the opposite. In men and women that have walked long with the Lord, the closer they get to the light, the more they see the stains. The humbler they walk, the more deeply they lean on that crutch, until finally they get ready to step into glory, and they cry, nothing of myself I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. It's all of Christ. It's all of him. Let my name not even be known. Count Zinzendorf is bishop of the Moravian church. And he would tell his missionaries that were being sent out, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. How many celebrity pastors need to hear that? I don't want you to even know my name. I want you to know Christ. And why do you think they so hated John the Baptist? John said he must increase 
and I must decrease. False teachers say, God must decrease and I must increase. These men were wicked. But Jesus says to beware. Beware. Now it seems that if someone is just out and out wicked, why do we need to beware? I can see that, right? That's bad. Get away from that. Why the warning? Well, seven times in Matthew 23, which Matthew 23, please make that note, is basically, it's our text today expanded out. And I would love to read it all if we had time, but it really lays out all the charges against the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you. And seven times, if I counted correctly, he called them hypocrites. That's the danger. That's why you are to beware, because they are not what they seem. Do we really think the devil comes with a pitchfork and a pointy tail? MacArthur correctly states that, quote, Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it. Close quote. Satan does not attack the church from without. He attacks it from within. And Peter tells us in his second epistle, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, we would be shocked if we saw how much of the New Testament is dedicated to identifying and speaking about false teachers. And considering all the things that we could speak of that are, that are necessary to know, it is a continuous theme. It is even Jesus' last and final theme for the people. Now, I imagine some have been curious up to this point about the title of the message, Clouds Without Rain. While some of you may know, I thought I might string you along a little bit wondering about that. Just hang it in the back of your head. Clouds without rain. What does it mean? Well, this comes directly from Jude's epistle. Jude, as you know, was written really for one purpose. To address false teachers, false prophets, apostates of the faith. One of the ways Jude describes them is they are clouds without rain. When you see clouds, they promise to bring rain. Some translations say clouds without water. And as we have even more understanding, interestingly enough, about meteorology, this verse takes on even more significance. A cloud is to be made up of water by its very essence. It is to bring life and rain. But it brings none of these things. Big, booming, dark clouds come over a parched and weary field where the farmer desperately needs rain and the people cry out. But the clouds brought no rain. They are empty and hollow. They are posing as a cloud that brings rain, but they are not what they seem. And that's a theme throughout Scripture. The writer of Proverbs writes like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Not only is Jude dedicated to this very subject, but how much of 2 Peter as well. And thus Peter picks up on this analogy in 2 Peter 2.17. 
These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Behold clouds without rain. Beware, Jesus says. And what else do these teachers do? Verse 39, what else do they desire? And the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. This is pride. This is seething pride. Craving the acceptance of men, the praise of men, the adoration of men. Let all see me. Yet Paul exhorted the Galatians, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Are the actions we take, are the things we say and do God-oriented to please him above all? Or are they man-oriented? For the false teacher and for the religiously corrupt, they desire the chief seats. The glory and honor that is due to God, they desire and they steal for themselves. Not just in religious circles. Note, it was not just in the synagogue, but at the banquets, at meals, out amongst the world. Much more we could say on that. But they want to be seen. They want to be recognized. They want the trappings of power. They're prideful. They're big on the external, on symbology. And as we will see now, they want to be made wealthy through exploitation. Look with me to our last verse, verse 40. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. Now, pause there quickly. Now, it's such a short descriptor, and it's easily glossed over, but Jesus is putting his finger really on one of the most dastardly practices by the scribes. And it really best represents a marker of a false teacher, a huckster, a charlatan. And that's what these scribes were. When we think of widows along with children, we're to think of the most vulnerable in society. And James writes in his epistle, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God to the Father, God the Father, excuse me, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. But yet the very leaders who are supposed to be protecting you and watching out for you are going to be the ones fleecing you. And fleece the widows the scribes did. You see, when the husbands would die, most would, be left without an, most would be left with an inheritance, an estate, a home. And these experts of the law would come in and say, let me help you make sure your estate is in order. In fact, I might even live in this room over here in your house so that I can get the lay of the land. And I'm going to make sure that all of your legal matters are set up as they should be. And slowly, as time goes on, the scribe would leech off them. He would eat them out of house and home. He would turn her finances upside down through deception and trickery. And of course, they feel helpless. And if they were much older, their mental cognition might not even recognize what's going on. And then guess what? As a result of all this upheaval of their estate, well, they need more legal help to keep her safe. But now she doesn't have the money to pay for the legal help. So the scribes take them home. As collateral, they could never pay. They would die. And guess what? The scribes would keep the home. But don't worry, it went to God. It went to God. 
And even if the scribes didn't get their fingers directly into this pie, many people would leave their property to the temple. Well, guess who writes up the the deed and the will for them to do that? The scribes. They would get the money anyway. Good old Jewish estate planning. It was wicked. They devour, they consume, they plunder widows. Yet is there anything new under the sun? Is there not a TV channel we could turn on right now that wouldn't be doing the same thing? Some religious huckster getting a widow on a fixed income to send in that love offering? To plant that seed? You say you only have $1,000 from your social security this month? Send in that $1,000 and watch what God will do. False teachers are predators. We'll dive deeper into this in the part two next week as we look at the widow's might. I don't want to steal too much thunder from that going forward. But back to our text, what else do they do? And for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. Now we might think this as a separate issue, but it's actually directly related. See, the scribes would use these prayers as a guise. They would actually go into the widow's home in all of their robes, in all of their pomp, and they would boast these long prayers right there in their living room. And now, Mother, now that I have prayed long and loud that you would be faithful in your estate planning and God is watching, how can I help? It was spiritual manipulation. They were putting out peacock feathers to dazzle and distract. These were not prayers from the heart. These were for show. Of course, we see this other places in Scripture as well, right? Not just in deceiving the vulnerable. We might as well add these to the these external prayers onto our external symbology that we talked about earlier. The less that's inside, the more we need to show outside. But what awaits those that prey upon the weak? Those that use religion as their vessel to fill their greed and their pride. Those that would use faith as a tool to deceive and to destroy. Last part of verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. Now that's positively loaded with implication in theology, isn't it? I'll get you out for lunch, I promise. As always, we don't build a doctrine around one verse. That's a quick way to error. But this tells us a good deal about the method and degrees of punishment. Is hell one size fits all? That's a great question. Saw some ears perk up there. When people think about this, something like Dante's Inferno comes to mind, right? Like the nine circles of hell, the divine comedy. While scripture doesn't specifically say that there are different degrees or levels of hell, it does indicate that judgment will be experienced differently. We see in Revelation people being judged according to the works they had done. Jesus in Luke 10, he declares greater judgment on the villages that heard the truth and rejected it. That their judgment would be greater than Sodom and Gomorrah because they heard the truth and they rejected it. And again in Luke 12, what does Jesus say? The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. So judgment clearly seems tied to the amount of light that someone has received. 
The greatest being reserved for those who not only knew, but used it to prey upon others, to destroy those that God has commanded you to protect. And the outer darkness is reserved for those who cloaked themselves in the name of Jesus and used it as a tool to feed their own ambition, their own greed, their pride, their lust. And while it is well that we know this, even so, we see our own accountability tied to the light that we've been given as well. Beloved, if you have been blessed to live in the year 2023, if the Lord has sovereignly placed you in a church called Harrison Hills on a Sunday morning, you have heard the gospel. And we're accountable for the light that we've been given and what we do with it. As we've often said, coming to church isn't free. There is a demand made upon us, a demand upon the hearer this morning that we must respond to the call of Christ in repentance and faith. While it is still called today, his arm is not too short to save. Beloved, there was a scribe just a few verses back. Someone who would have been surrounded, inundated, saturated in all the false teachings, all the bad practices that we've laid out today. And what did Jesus tell him? You are not far from salvation. He saves men and women and children of all nations, tribes, and tongues, all histories, all past sins, even knowing our future ones. He offers salvation still. What a marvelous Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are humbling verses. This is a humbling text. Lord, that we might cling closely to your word. Lord, we thank you for the canon. Lord, we thank you for the scripture, for the measuring rod that you've given us to know if what we are hearing is true. Lord, that we might cling fast to it, that we might proclaim it, that we might use it as a light into our path. Lord, you've been so good to bring us here together this morning. In your sovereignty, you have deemed it well. Lord, we ask that it would penetrate the heart. Lord, that it would bring forth good produce in good times and good season. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us, keep us until we can meet again under your banner in the name of Christ. Amen.